Thank you so much, Don. Appreciate that. Thank you all for your willingness to participate uh, in special prayer focus this week on behalf of our brother, uh, Doug. Now, if you would, turn your Bibles to in that text that was read for us uh, earlier, uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, if you turn there. As I said, our theme today is uh, looking ahead. We'll be talking about that uh, this afternoon, but I also want it to be the application of this passage that God's put on my heart for us to share this morning. Uh, we will, in just a couple of weeks, be back into our series of messages going through the Gospel of Luke that will lead us up to a wonderful celebration of the resurrection on Easter Sunday. But for some time now, I've had this uh, passage on my heart, so I want us to look there in Hebrews chapter 10. Now, as you've turned there, I want to ask you a question. How many of you have, can have immediately come to your mind uh, a favorite vehicle in your family, a car, when you were growing up? Anybody think of that? Okay, just a favorite vehicle. And when I think about that, I immediately go to a... 65 Dodge station wagon, okay? Now, you know, it, it was quite an old car even when I was a child. I want to make that clear, okay? But a 65 Dodge station wagon. And I remember the da day my dad drove up in that in front of our house, white with a red interior, and I uh, immediately, as a little boy, I was all over that thing, and I found the coolest thing possible about that station wagon. It had a pop-up seat in the back where you could look back out the back window. Anybody remember these? Okay. I claimed that seat, okay? That's my seat. That's not Lonnie's seat. That's not Lloyd's seat. That's mine. I claimed it. And whether dad, it was just me and dad, and he was driving, I'd climb in that back seat, that was my seat. Well, one time we were driving, and uh, Lonnie was in the front seat, and Lloyd was in the next seat. I'm back in the back, and Lonnie says, Sam, why don't you ride up here? You always ride back there. Why don't you ride up here so you can see where you're going? And I said, well, I like riding back here to see where we've been, okay? And he didn't understand that, okay? I just like looking out the back. I like looking around, looking back, where we've been, had those windows all around me. I just enjoyed it so much. That was my experience with automobile. And then, several years later, I had to take driver's training. Guess what they told me at driver's training? You can't do that anymore. <laughs> no, no. Uh, not, you, can, you cannot drive looking back, and they would talk to us about not looking around. But what? Focusing forward. Focusing forward. Not looking back, not looking around, looking ahead. And I want us to think about that today, looking ahead. And I want to challenge myself. I want to challenge us as a church family from these living words of God challenge us about our focus, that our focus cannot be looking back. Now, I, I love history. If you know anything about me, I'm intrigued by it. Uh, had a double major in college. One of those majors was history. I love history. I love studying history. But listen, I don't live in history. I don't live in history. It's wonderful to know history, but you don't live in history. It's wonderful to look around. It's, it's wonderful to be aware of what's going on in the world around us. As Christians, we're not to be people who put our head in the sand. <laughs> no, we need to know the past. We need to know what's going on. But our focus in faith needs to be forward. Focused forward by looking up to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I sense that's a struggle. I sense that's a struggle. I sense it in my heart. I sense it in our church family, maybe more than ever. 
that it's, it's a struggle and sometimes to look back to what used to be and to look around us. And my friends, I tell you, when we look around this world today, there's an, you'll find no encouragement there, right? And when you listen to how this world is interpreted through the media, you won't find encouragement there. You really won't find truth either. But we need to make sure that as God's people, though we are living in challenging times, times like we have never experienced before, times of challenges don't seem to go away. Just when we think that things have settled down in, in relationship to health, things change. We see things around us that, that are, quite frankly, scary. Uh, the, the fabric of, of society in many ways, which we have known it, is, is coming apart. The world is a very different place. Our country, a very different place. And I have sensed a tendency in my own heart, and I have sensed in our own church family... That because perhaps of the difficulties of the day in which we live and the challenges that we are facing individually, challenges that we are facing nationally, internationally, challenges that we faced as a local church, that there is a tendency to draw us looking back, to draw us looking around us into negativity and not... Being strong in faith as we look to our sovereign, saving God. And I want to challenge us today from our text. It's a timeless passage, but you know the Bible is always up to date, right? It's, it's a timeless pack book that's always timely. Now, we're reading from Hebrews. And before we dive into Hebrews and what I have to share, and we open up this passage, we need to understand why it was written. Why was the book of Hebrews written? Because when we understand why it was written, it will help us as we read it. It will help us to understand how it applies to our life. The book of Hebrews, written by only God knows... We're not sure who the human author of Hebrews is, but God is the divine author. It was written, directed to specifically Jewish believers in Jesus as Messiah. People of the Jewish community who by God's grace had come to recognize that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah. That he has been crucified and he has risen from the dead. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of all the promises made to the Jewish people. That's who is receiving this letter. But now here's what's going on in their lives. Now, as Jewish believers who believed in Jesus, they are no longer just seen as a part of the mass of these Christ followers, these Christ ones, Christians. But they are seen as people who have rejected their heritage, people who have rejected the faith of their fathers, People who are a threat to the community because of their faith. People who are perhaps a threat now to the empire because of their allegiance to this Messiah who was crucified because he was considered king. And they are under persecution. It's cost them family relationships. Tens of thousands of them have been disowned from their families. Because they're followers of Jesus. Thousands and thousands of them have had to leave their communities because they're followers of Jesus. 
Many of them cannot go to the synagogue to worship because they're followers in Jesus. They've lost their jobs because they are followers of Jesus. And their hearts have believed in Christ and believed that he is Messiah. But it is so hard. And so a pressure, sometimes external, but it's come internal, to look back. It was easier then. Things, things seemed to fit back then. I had some, I had some sense of a, a of a compass for my life back then. I had a greater community back then. And looking back, they're tempted to what? Go back. Go back. And so the writer of this epistle is led by the Spirit of God. To send a message from God specifically to these Jewish believers in Jesus. But not to them alone. To his people through the ages. Who because of persecution. Because of challenges. Because of opposition. Because of the difficulty. Because of the lack of Popularity, because of misunderstanding, slander, and libel. They're tempted to go back. God wrote this to encourage his people then and people today. We can't go back. We cannot go back. Do not go back. But why? Just a negative? Don't go back? Don't you dare do that? Don't you even think about going back? Is that why God tells his people not to go back? Don't do it. It's wrong. No. He says, don't go back. Why? Because Jesus is better. That's the theme of the the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. It's hard, it's difficult, it's challenging to follow Jesus, but he's worth it. Jesus is better. And you outline the whole book. Jesus is better, he's writing to these Jewish people. He's better than the patriarchs. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the Sabbath rest. He's better than the priesthood. He's better than the high priest. He has brought a better covenant. Jesus is better. (laughs) That's what God wants us to understand. In this world, you will have trials. He that lives godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But there is nothing, nothing, And the sufferings of this present world worthy to be compared of the eternal weight of glory in Christ that will be revealed in us in that day. It cannot even be compared. Jesus is the treasure in the field. He's a pearl of great price. Jesus is better. And so all of that, Jesus is better, leads to this text and it all transitions because from now to the rest of the book this writer is going to start talking about faith to look up and look ahead and here's how it starts verse 19 therefore brothers this is all ten and a half chapters to this point therefore brothers Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. Now notice, look back at verse 19. Two words start the transition. Notice them. Therefore and since. 
Don't just read over these. Therefore, and since. Therefore, tells us about our practices. What, are, what needs to be our new covenant practices as followers of Jesus? Since means our new covenant privileges. Since we have all these privileges in Christ, we need to put into action these practices. Whole book turns here. And that's where this idea of looking ahead comes from. So here's what I want to share with you briefly. Number one, I want us to consider the privileges of new covenant realities. And I want us to consider the practices of new covenant responsibilities. First of all, we're going to look for a few minutes at the privileges of new covenant realities. In just a few minutes, we're going to have communion. And what was it that Jesus said that night? This is the blood of the new, what? Covenant. This is a new covenant. And there are realities. <laughs> Friends, they are spiritual, but they're real. How many of you know the most real things in the world are those which are invisible and spiritual? This world is the transitory place. This world is a dream. This world is passing away. But the realities of Christ are forever and ever. They're real. Now notice these realities. Look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Now imagine, talk about privileges. He's speaking to Jewish people here. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that there was a tent followed by a, tab, by a temple. And there was a curtain. And behind that curtain was the Ark of the Covenant. It was there over that covenant between, over that Ark between the outstretched arms of the cherubim that had been sculptured. That was the dwelling place of God with his people. There was a huge curtain in front of it. Who could go back there? Only the high priest. How often could he go back there? One time a year. And here he says, Therefore, brothers, we have confidence to enter the holy place. We can go right into the presence of God. Why? Because we have a confidence. How dare we as sinners to go into the presence of a holy God? What confidence can we have? Look at it. The blood of Jesus. You know, I've thought about maybe what it might have been like to be that high priest. Can you imagine? Would you want that job? Once a year, you go into the presence of God. We're told in the Bible that there were little bells around his garment he would wear that day. And as he would walk around, that those bells would ring. We're also told by ancient Jewish writings that they put a rope around the high priest. Why? Because if he goes back there in a way that's not acceptable to God, and God strikes him down... Who's going after him? You can hear, not me. No, no, no. He went back there, but he didn't go back there with, without what? The blood of the sacrifice. The blood of the sacrifice. The Bible says we come into the presence of God by the blood of Jesus. <laughs> the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God gives us this confidence, our blessed assurance. And notice the blood of Jesus. Look at verse 20, what he's made for us. It's a new and living way. 
that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Now, I wish I had time just to go deep here because there are things here that are just like, God, you're so awesome. But notice here, he says, through Christ, we have this new and living way. Do you see that word new? That's the only time it's ever used in the New Testament. It's the Greek word prosthetan, prosthetan. And you know what it means? Freshly slain. That's what it means. Freshly slain. We have the ability to go by the blood of Jesus, by a new, freshly slain, living way. <laughs> now, why, how can you put those two together? Freshly slain, that's dead. Living, not dead. How, how is Jesus the ever-living, not-dead one? <laughs> the ever-living, slain one. He is the Lamb of God. Whoever, forever and ever, throughout history and time to come, He will cleanse from sin. And He's ever-living He's ever living. He's ever atoning and he's ever living. What a savior, right? We come to God because there is one who has died. He died once for sin, but he bears in his body the marks of his suffering forever. And he lives forever. And when you think, or I think, that we've sinned too much, He is the new way, the ever-slain living way. Isn't that awesome? And notice, through the curtain of His flesh. Now what? What? The curtain of His flesh. Again, you have to understand and think about the Jewish people here. In the Old Testament, where did God live? He lived behind a curtain. He lived in a tabernacle that was a curtain. What does the Bible say of this God? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. By Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made which was made. In him was life, and the light was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. And then it goes on to say, John says, And the Word became what? Flesh. You know what the word became there means? The Word, the eternal Son of God, came like a tent. He pitched his tent among us. Not a tent of curtain, the tent of human flesh. God dwelt among us in a curtain of human flesh. And on the cross, that curtain of his flesh was torn in sacrifice. But in that sacrifice, he said, it is finished. And what was torn? The curtain in the temple. So there's a living and new way. Hallelujah, what a Savior. I'm telling you, friends, our God's awesome. And the love of Jesus, beyond comprehension. Jesus is God in a curtain, a flesh. And the flesh was torn to open the curtain to God. And that human body was raised from the dead. And he ever lives to be our Savior. Are you feeling privileged yet? Now we have a new great high priest. A priest is a mediator. In the New Testament, you never read in the New Testament of an office in the church of the priest. There is no priesthood in the New Testament. I know there are Christian groups and they refer to their leaders as priests. But that terminology is not found in the New Testament. 
There's only one priest in the New Testament. There is one God and one mediator between God and men. Who is that? The man Christ Jesus. Now we go directly to our high priest. We don't need a priest to get to Jesus. We are a kingdom of priests by his shed blood. And we come boldly before him because he ever intercedes for us. Now, what privileges? But with privileges come what? Walk around, I'm privileged, I'm privileged. I'm more privileged than you're privileged. No. Because we know every privilege we have is what? Of total grace. Total grace. Not justice. Aren't you glad you don't get what you deserve? Oh my, do not ever ask God to be fair with you. You don't want that. We're privileged by God's grace, but we've got responsibilities. With privileges come responsibilities. And now notice three statements that talk about our, our, our responsibilities. Do you see them? Three privileges that talk about our responsibilities. And they all begin with the same two words. Look at them. Let us, verse 22, verse 23, let us, verse 24, let us. I had a professor of Greek in seminary. He encouraged us to preach from this passage and he said, you can call it your salad sermon. It's filled with good lettuce, okay? I, I know, I know, that's corny as can be, but you won't forget it, okay? You won't forget it. I wish I could forget it, but I can't forget it. Let us. Now notice the word let, these words let us. There's two things in that. Listen up, church. It's personal and it's mutual. Let us. That means we have to do something individually. Let us. But we don't do it alone. You see, the responsibilities that we have as Christians are personal and mutual. We share them. You have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as your Savior. He is a personal Savior. Thank God for that, right? But you do not have a solitary Savior. He is the Savior of all who believe. And you have a personal relationship with Jesus, but you do not have an isolated relationship with Jesus. And some of us who have gotten so used to individualism in our country need to understand that is not New Testament. We need each other. We're called to each other. We have a life to live individually, but we live that mutually with others. We are family. That's the New Testament teaching. Let us. Three challenges that are personal and mutual. Now, what are the challenges? How do, how do we live out these privileges? Note them quickly. Number one, the challenge of personal and mutual worship. The challenge of personal and mutual worship. Verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance. Draw near where? Draw near to God. Draw near to Christ. With a heart in full assurance with faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Our bodies washed with pure water. Now this is covenant language. The old covenant said there's a new covenant where God will sprinkle his people's consciences with new water. He will wash them and they will be clean. This was the promise. And Jesus, when he was talking to Nicodemus, said that what he was bringing was this new covenant. Unless a man is born of water and spirit. What was Jesus talking about? You must be born of this cleansing that comes from God. 
by the Spirit in your heart. It's worship language. What does it say? Let us draw near. <laughs> Let's draw near to God with full assurance. How can we draw near to God? With full assurance of faith. Notice, assurance is connected to faith. We're to worship God personally and we worship Him mutually together. We do it in an assurance that comes from faith. Now, how do we find faith? If I'm to go to God to worship Him privately or I'm to come to church and worship Him publicly with other believers, or I'm in a group with other believers to worship Him mutually, how, how do I get the faith, the confidence to do that? Well, friend, listen carefully. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. Faith is based on where you're looking. If you look to yourself, you'll find no basis of faith there, right? If you look to others, as much as you love them, they're imperfect, they'll let you down, you don't know if you can trust them explicitly. Where do you find faith? Well, turn over a couple pages. Hebrews chapter 12. What does the writer say? Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder. He's the founder and he is the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He's seated at the right hand of God. Where do you find faith? You find faith by looking to the source of faith. The originator of faith is Jesus Christ. You don't find faith by reading a book about faith. You don't find faith by just talking about faith. You don't find faith by just going to church. You've got to look to the origin of faith. And the origin of faith is Jesus Christ. And what do you look to? You look to the one who for the joy of seeing you redeemed endured the cross even though he despised the shame and that Savior that loved you so is seated in the heavenly. Now that's faith. That's a basis of faith. You won't feel saved sometimes. I heard a pastor say, and I must agree with him, he loses his salvation every Monday morning. I don't know. It's just my Monday mornings for pastors. You've lost your salvation for a moment. You know, you don't feel saved. You don't know if you're saved. You struggle at times of assurance. Where do you look? You look to Christ and His love. And there is where you cast your anchor on Christ, looking to Jesus. That's what worship is. What is worship? Worship is focusing on God. It, whenever, if you're reading the Bible, you may not be worshiping unless you are focusing on God. You, you can come to church and not worship. There's all the difference in the world in going to church and coming to worship. Some of you have been worshiping all morning. Some of you here haven't worshiped for a moment. Because your, fo your focus, not for one moment, has been on Jesus. Worship is when you focus on the Lord. And what happens when you worship? You know what happens? It's the most amazing thing in the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says, As we are looking to Jesus, what's happening? Something's happening to us. We are being made more like Him. As we focus on His glory and we worship Him, in His presence, we are being changed. In some way, we become like Moses. Moses came down from the Mount of Sinai, and what did they have to beg him to do? Uh, put a veil on your face. You know, we can't look at you, Moses. You've been up there 40 days. You're shining like the new day, new day sun. And what does the Bible say? Moses didn't know his face was shining. 
You see, people who are shining for Jesus, they don't usually know it. But other people see it, see him in them. As a matter of fact, people walking around saying, look at what I've experienced. Woo! Did I get lifted up? Whoa, I'm just walking on clouds. Man, I'm feeling it. I'll tell you about a person like that. Don't ever buy a used car from them. Because <laughs> a person to tell you that will sell you anything. People who are absorbed with Jesus are not self-absorbed. They're reflecting Christ, and they don't even know it. <laughs> by worship, we're gripped by the glory of God. Personally and mutually. My heart's desire is that when you leave this place, every single service, you will not say, what a service. You won't say, what worship. You won't say, what a sermon. You will say, what a Savior. That is worship. By worship, we are gripped by the glory of God. And then, and only then, can we truly get a grip on the faith. And that's the second responsibility we have quickly. First responsibility is to have personal and mutual worship. The second responsibility is personal and mutual equipping. Personal and mutual equipping. Now I want to tell you, right now, this moment, i got to tell you a little secret. I'm so happy. You know why I'm so happy? That clock's not working back there, and this clock's not working either. I'm just happy. I'm telling you. I am, I am one free man this morning. <laughs> so, if you want to say, Pastor, your message was timeless. No, really, it was timeless. Right, really. <laughs> Verse 23. Here's what we got to get a grip on. Chapter 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Now notice, hold fast. You know what that literally means? Get a grip. <laughs> Get a grip. Get a grip on what? The confession of our hope. The confession of our hope. What's that talking about? It's not talking about your witness, though your witness comes out of this. The confession of our hope here means the substance of our hope. The substance of our hope. Get a grip on the substance of your hope. Hold tight to that substance. What is that substance? The faith. Now notice I said the faith. I just talked about faith in Jesus. But what we're also to have a grip on, having been gripped by Christ, we are to get a grip on the faith. We are to know what God says, what it means, and how it applies to our lives and our service for Him. That's what is being challenged here. That personally and mutually, we are to get a grip on the faith. And what's the basis of our faith? The basis of our faith. The faith. Where is the faith found? It's found in the word of God. The word of God. So what are we being called to do here? We are being called personally and mutually to get a grip on what we believe. What we believe. I love what Luke wrote in Luke chapter 1, verse 4. He was writing the letter to his friend Theophilus. It's, it's a, quite a letter. Volume 1, Luke. Volume 2, Acts. That's quite a letter. And he said, I'm writing these things to you, O 
noble Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that are being taught. That you may have a certainty about what's being taught about Jesus and about his work through his spirit in the book of Acts. You see, we need to have a grip on what we believe. Do you know what you believe? We need a grip on why we believe it. The Bible says that we should be ready, what? To always give an answer for the hope that lies within us. That word answer is the word apologia, which means a reasoned response. We need to be ready to give a reasoned response for what we believe and why we believe it. That's called apologetics. All right? But just knowing what you believe and why you believe it, get a grip on that. And then number three, how to apply it. How do I apply what I believe? How do I apply it and how do I share it with others? Because it is a confession. You see, there's something inherent there in confession. Confession is something I have and I share, right? It's something I know and I share it with others. That's the reason we've got to have a grip on our faith. We've got to have a grip on what the Bible says so that we know what we believe. We know how it applies to our lives and we can share it with others. That's the reason. Now what's the basis of our hope? The Word of God. And it's the God of the Word who's our ultimate hope, right? Look what it says, verse 23. For He who promised, He who gave us this faith, the faith to believe and the faith of the doctrine, the truth, He who gave this to us, He is faithful. You know, one of my favorite titles in the Bible for God is this. Think about it. Titus 1-2. Paul says, He is the God who cannot lie. Isn't that awesome? Something God can't do. He can't lie to you. He'll never lie to you. Because He Himself is truth. And there's not a shadow of darkness or double talk. Awesome. Get a grip on the Word of God. Get a grip. Be gripped by the God of the Word. What we believe. Why we believe it. How to apply it. Now friends, this is one of the reasons that we have started our equipping classes. The first semester just concluded. We started just the first semester this morning. The, the, the equipping classes are about this. Knowing what you believe. Why you believe it how to apply it to your life, and how to share it with others. That's what the equipping classes are all about. I'm very, very grateful for the incredibly favorable response we've had to our equipping classes. We did a survey uh, just before the end of the first semester of these equipping classes that meet at 9.15. And the result was 95% of everyone who took the survey, very positive about the equipping classes. And we thank God for that. God's using them. And they were intentionally, intentionally determined and set forth by a lot of prayer, long prayer, months of prayer and consideration by our elders. Evaluating the impact of COVID. Evaluating the importance of being a people prepared, ready to speak for the Lord. This decision was made to move away from our ABF structure and move to this Sunday morning equipping class process. Now I know, I want to say this person, I know some miss the adult Bible fellowships. I understand. 
I, I know personally the person that instituted the adult Bible fellowships. I know him quite well. I know very deeply about the ministry of adult Bible fellowships. But I've also, along with the other elders, come to know the weaknesses inherent in them. Especially in some of the things that we have experienced. And also in regard to the mission of being equipped for mission. Now this was a unanimous decision of our elders after much prayer, much seeking the Lord. And I want to say for some, please hear me carefully. We appreciate and have taken carefully the evaluation and concerns by uh, some. Okay? That they miss their adult Bible fellowship. We understand that very much. And can recognize that. However... This decision is firm. This decision is here to stay. It is beginning to accomplish the purposes. The equipping classes are here to stay. The adult Bible fellowship format is not coming back. We appreciate the concerns, but I do want to just say this as I might as, as pastor and lead pastor under the elders, that continued groups disagreeing about this and mutually getting together to share their disagreements that's not helpful and it's not of the spirit I feel very strongly led to say that because God is using these classes and we've begun to see fruit and we believe that as elders, very clearly, that over the last many years, not just the last couple, we've seen there is a better way, closer aligned with scriptures, for there to be personal and mutual community. And that's the third responsibility. Notice that. The third responsibility, verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another... To love and good works. Personal and mutual community. Notice it's relational. We are to stir one another up. One another is throughout the New Testament. We have relationship. We do this together. It's a shared life. The word for it is koinonia. It's sharing life together in Christ. The one another's. Pray for one another. Encourage one another. Help one another. Confess to one another. Exhort one another. At times rebuke one another. These are relational commands. And they require relational community and intentionality. A community that does what? Let's stir up one another. Do you see that? Stir up. That means boil up. <laughs> it means fan the flame. We do it for one another. We don't come along and with negativity and criticism throw cold water on the flame. We don't come around and squelch someone's dreams. We, we don't tell people that they're not quite doing, a, uh, doing it the right way. Hey, praise God, they're doing something. Fan the, fan the flame a little bit. Blow, blow a little bit on it. Encourage one another. We need that. My friends, the world is so discouraging. If there's one place in the world we ought to be encouraged, it's a place of faith. It's the place of the family of God and love unconditional under one great Savior. And we stir each other up. This is intentional. It's relational. What are we stirring each other up for? All people are stirred up. <laughs> Ever heard of that? So he stirred people up. What do we stir people up for? Look at verse 24. Stir each other up for what? Love and good works. Is this conversation stirring people up for love and good works? 
Is this email stirring people up for love and good works? Love and good works is what we're to stir up each other to. You know what love is? Love's all about others. Love's all about others. It's agape love. It's our motivation. It acts. Love doesn't just wait to feel. Love acts. We stir each other up to love and good works. Activation. Good works. For the sake of whom? The glory of our Father in heaven. Together, when we say that we're to stir each other up to love and good works, you know what? Love and good works is outward focused. Inward focused just becomes self-focused and selfish. And there's just such spiritual death in there. Happiest people I ever meet are people that are doing something for others in Jesus' name. They're just fanatics. And the crabbiest, grouchiest people I ever meet are people who sit around and talk about not getting their way. I have people say, well, I wish there was somebody who would love me. Be that person. Go love somebody. Go talk to someone. You will find that love is something, guess what? It's like a bad penny. You can't give it away. Keeps coming back. What you sow, you reap. I told Doug that last night. I said, let me tell you why you're astounded and overwhelmed with the love of God's people. Because you've sown it into their lives. Now you're reaping it. You be a person of love. You be a person of others. And you'll feel the joy of the Lord. And you'll have friends. I told you the clock's not working. Community groups is what we are establishing. Missional community. Gathering around the word. Intentional, relational. And looking outward and how to serve. And always listen carefully with an empty chair. I want to tell you something. Listen carefully. You're part of a group and the group decides to have a social function and you know every single person in that gathering I think you should consider maybe that might be a failure because what people need is to be invited into other people's lives not just invited to church invited into homes Invited into gatherings where they're going to meet some Christians who are not nearly as wicked as they thought they were. Or maybe as goofy as they thought they were. The principle of the empty chair. You know, I've been blessed to have men's groups for years. We've always practiced the empty chair. Why? Because here's what we say. We're going to think that's where Jesus is sitting. Because he's here with us. And guess what? We want to see somebody else get in Jesus' chair. And then we'll set up another chair. Hospitality. Jake brought incredible message on it. And October 10th. If you haven't heard that, you need to go back and listen to it. The love of strangers. The love of people we don't know. Are we ever going to get over just hanging out with people we know. Are we ever going to be willing to walk across a church aisle to meet somebody we don't know? I tell you, 
We'll reach out to people that we don't know. We'll love on people, whoever comes here, people that we don't know. We invite them in. My word, what God's going to do. Personal, mutual worship, equipping, and community. That's our responsibility. That's our responsibility. And guess what it produces? Did you notice what it produces? Look at this. Verse 22, faith. Verse 23, hope. Verse 24, love. How do you develop the Christian virtues of faith, hope, and love? Personal mutual worship, personal mutual equipping, personal mutual community produces faith, hope, love. And there's only one way to do that, friends, by gathering together. Verse 25, not neglecting, not neglecting, and literally, this is the literal translation, stop neglecting, stop neglecting gathering together as is the habit of some. But encouraging one another, hey, Come be with us. Hey, missed you. Encouraging one another. And should we be doing it less? No, all the more as the day is coming. You see, it's not just the formal gatherings of worship. It's not just the formal gatherings of a group or an equipping class. But Christians need to be getting together regularly to encourage each other as the day gets closer and the day gets closer. And we invite others to come in and be with us. This is how disciples are made. Not neglecting. Not neglecting. There are many, we understand many, many, many of our folks who physically cannot come with health concerns they cannot come caregivers they cannot come and they should not come but a mindset that isolates us from worship and fellowship oh I can't go do that but I can go to the restaurant I can go to Walmart I'm, I'm, I'm no isolation there I just don't know if I can go to church. Just don't know if I can go to a group gathering. We, (laughs) with our health before the Lord, we cannot isolate ourselves from others. We need each other. And we need to stop doing it. We need to stop it. And Dedicate ourselves to this. Make a priority of it so much the more. And we do this in great anticipation. The day's coming. You know, it's always amazed me how people think being challenged to go to church or be in a group, get connected, is legalism. Well, that's legalistic. You know, isn't it funny we don't get legalistic about going to work? We don't get legalistic about our son's basketball practice. We don't get legalistic about homework. No. But we can sure get legalistic about the challenge and exhortation to be together in community and worship. Max is coming, and I want you to take the cup, and we prepared our hearts now, and I'm so thankful. (laughs) that the clock was not working. You know what I just found out? It is working, but someone put a clipboard in front of it. And, and I have no knowledge, but I want you to know, you're a friend of mine, whoever did that. You, you gave me cover this morning, okay? Let's bow our heads now. Don't we have a wonderful Savior? Think about his sacrifice. 
Think about this new and living way. Think about the communion of the saints. And think about this. Jesus said, you're to observe communion until I come again. Oh, one day the last communion service will be held. And then the next, it will be the marriage supper of the Lamb. Praise God. But now we take communion. Let's sing to the Lord and remind ourselves, Jesus paid it all.